Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. I know I have mentioned this previously in homilies, that baptism is the second greatest event in our life. Why? Because at the moment of our baptism, we are literally claimed by God. We become the adopted sons and daughters of God the Father, brothers and sisters of Christ. More to it, after our baptism, we begin to share a life with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit now rushes into our soul to take up residence there forever. Therefore, it is the second greatest event in our life. So you may say to yourself, well, what is the greatest event? Well, when we come face to face with that beatific vision, when we come face to face with God, then we know we've made it. We're in heaven and we're never going to leave. We'll be there for all of eternity with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the saints, the angels, our ancestors. We will be with them for all of eternity. And that truly will be the greatest event in our life. Now, the scriptures for this weekend, they speak to us about that. Go to the first reading from 2 Maccabees. I would argue this reading sets the doctrine and the dogma of our belief of the resurrection. Now, when we read this first reading, essentially it's kind of confusing. We don't really understand what's going on. That's because we're coming in at the very middle of a story. What we have to go to is ancient history and look at Alexander the Great. During his time, he pretty much conquered most of the civilized world. And therefore, what he wanted to do is make the entire world Hellenized, or what you could say influenced by Greek culture as well as religion. And so, what Alexander the Great did is after he conquered a country or a people or nation, he would establish a puppet king there that would do exactly what Alexander the Great wanted. And then he would move on to conquer the next country or the next people or nation. So he did just that with Israel. He conquered them. And then he established King Antiochus from Syria to be the puppet king. And he would do exactly what Alexander the Great wanted. And he's doing it now. He's imposing Greek culture and religion upon the Israelite people. Now, some of the Israelites acquiesced and they accepted or adopted Greek culture as well as the religion. But here we have a family in the first reading that refused. In fact, most of the Orthodox Jews during that time resisted. They refused. They did not want to commit what we would refer to in our day and age as apostasy, which is to deny the faith. So with that in mind, now go into the first reading. It begins to make some sense. Here we have a family with seven brothers, and they're all forced to either submit to Greek culture and religion or to die. Now they resist. Despite the fact that they face the threat of torture and death, they resist to deny their Jewish faith. Now notice what some of these brothers say. You cursed fiend, 
You are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the world will raise us up to live again forever. Well, that's a bold proclamation that they believe that Christ or God will raise them up from the dead. Notice what the next brother says. It is my choice to die at the hands of men with the hope God gives of being raised up by him. So these brothers firmly believe that God will raise them up even if they are killed. Why not? They are giving their lives for God. They are becoming martyrs. Now notice how confident they are in the resurrection. They are very willing to hand over their life just because they believe so much in the resurrection. That's why it says at the very end of the story, King Antiochus marveled at their courage. Well, they're very courageous because they truly believe that God will raise them up and they will live for all of eternity with God in heaven. Now, this is a great segue into the gospel. In the gospel, we have the Sadducees. Now, we don't hear of these Sadducees quite often. We hear a lot about the Pharisees. We know all about them. The difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the fact that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They are scholars of the law, just like the Pharisees. And they follow the Mosaic law to the very letter of the law. But if you look at the Mosaic law, it never mentioned the resurrection. So the Sadducees simply don't believe in it. And yet, Jesus, he comes around, and what is he always preaching? The resurrection, eternal life, only through him. Remember last week, great example of this, the story of Zacchaeus. Remember what Jesus says at the very end after Zacchaeus converts. He says, Today salvation has come to this house, to Zacchaeus' soul. So Jesus is constantly preaching eternal life and salvation through him. Well, the Sadducees basically have had enough. They don't believe in it, and they set a trap for Jesus. More to it, they want to embarrass Jesus. Not only prove that the resurrection is folly and absurd, but make Jesus to be a fool. Now, the technical argument that they use here is what's referred to as reductio ad absurdum which is Latin for reduce to the absurd. Basically, it's a time-honored way to argue a point. In this case, to disprove a proposition by using a series of logical steps to consequently prove something is absurd. Well, that's what the Sadducees are doing. They want to prove that the resurrection is a hoax. It's not true. So then they use this series of logical steps with this Mar- woman marrying you know, brother after brother after brother to prove that the resurrection is obviously absurd because when they do rise from the dead, who is she going to be married to? Because she married all seven brothers. Now, it's interesting to note the Sadducees are actually using the law of Levi. Now, this law is one in which if you are a man and you have a brother and he's married to a wife, and unexpectedly, your brother dies, and he and his wife never had children, then according to the law of Levi, you had to marry your sister-in-law. Now, you say, well, this is bizarre. Well, you have to understand, in the ancient world, there were no social safety nets. There were no social security, retirement, 401k. There was no Medicare, no Medicaid, none of that stuff. And remember, this woman had no children, so there was no one to take care of her. So widows in the ancient world were incredibly vulnerable. 
That's why the law of Levi recognized that and made, you know, the brother had to marry his own sister-in-law in this event. So this is something that's very real. Now, Jesus gives an answer. And the answer that he gives teaches us about the resurrection. He doesn't concede anything. No, not at all. In fact, what he wants to do is correct the Sadducees' way of thinking. Jesus answers by saying, The children of this age marry and remarry, but those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Now, I want to stay there with marriage. The Catholic Church teaches that there are two dimensions contained within marriage. Marriage must be unitive and procreative. Unitive, which means it must be a source of love between husband and wife. When they get married, the love that they have already must continue to advance, grow, strengthen. That's what it means to be unitive, such that their love continues to grow and foster so that that love spills over and touches the lives of their children as well as everyone else that that couple comes into contact with in their daily lives. So it fosters a unitive or a union within that marriage. Procreative simply means the propagation of children. Now realize, in the wedding ritual itself, this unitive and procreative nature is exposed. Before a couple exchanges their vows or exchanges their rings, the priest has to ask the couple, will you accept children lovingly from God? Well, that's the procreative side. And then he'll ask them, will you love and honor each other as husband and wife for the rest of your life? Well, there's the unitive aspect. Now, the propagation of children is based upon what? Well, it's based upon our own mortality, isn't it? We all know that the bodies that we have right now are not going to last forever. They were never built that way. At some point in time, unfortunately, we will all die. Therefore, we must have children in order to simply carry on the human race. If we were to stop having children right now, the human race would probably last for another generation or two and then cease to exist. So we must propagate for the human race but also to carry on our church so that our church continues on in the future. And so there are many reasons why we have children, but one practical reason why we have children is based upon our own mortality. Now, I think Jesus is driving at this when he answers this question, but those who are deemed worthy to attain the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Well, marriage after the resurrection is not necessary because no one needs to carry on the next generation. When we are in heaven, we're not required to have children. Why? Because the resurrection is not concerned or burdened with mortality like we are in this world. Instead, the resurrection is filled with immortality. See, that's why the readings for this weekend remind us that at the heart of our faith, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our hope that we will participate in it. And again, it all starts with baptism when we begin to share a life with Christ. Now, we have to realize that Jesus clearly died. That's attested to by all four gospel writers. In fact, he died at the hands of his enemies, similar to what's going on in the first reading. 
But we also know that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a fact that's proven by all four gospel writers as well as by St. Paul himself. And so Jesus, he embodies, I would say, the physicality of the resurrection. When he appears to the apostles, the apostles see him, they hear him speak, they touch his body. Thomas, you know, put your hands in my side, you know, probe my nail marks. They also see him eat. You know, that story in which he takes that piece of fish and he eats it before them, and they're all amazed. Jesus' resurrection, though, isn't like a return to these bodies that we have now. No. Instead, the resurrection transcends time and space. That's why Jesus is able to pass through locked doors. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he was able to appear to 500 people simultaneously. But don't make the mistake, he's not a ghost. He's absolutely real. Paul writes about the resurrection in Romans and Corinthians. And he says, at the time of our resurrection, we will attain spiritual bodies that are not governed by the laws or the rules of space and time in this world. And we recognize and profess that every time we gather for Mass. We recite or we profess the Nicene Creed. And at the very end of the Creed, what do we say? We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that's heaven. See, that's why the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of our faith. Paul best sums it up. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Paul writes, If Christ had not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And see, this is the reason why we go to Mass every weekend, why we pray every day, why we perform the corporal and spiritual works of mercy throughout our life, why we try and live a good and virtuous life. It's because we hope that we will share one day in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, we cannot earn or merit the resurrection or salvation. Ultimately, it is a gift. But we try and live a good and virtuous life to make ourselves worthy of that great gift. That's why I always say to keep the resurrection in the back of our mind, not as a morbid sense, no, but to always make sure that each and every day of our life, we are living a life worthy of that great gift. What we have to understand There is a great gift there out there for us all. It's a gift given to us by God. The gift is the resurrection and eternal life, which is all that God ever wants to give us. And may the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.